Hi everyone, Pastor Bren here, delighted to be bringing the message today. Let's pray and then let's jump into God's Word together. Father God, we thank you so much for your Word. We pray you open it to our hearts and pray that you open our hearts to what you have to say to us in your Word as well. We pray that in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we are biting into the second half of Galatians chapter 2 today. If you've been following the series so far, you know that Paul has spent the last chapter and a half of this letter uh, imploring the reader to understand that there is one gospel, there will never be another. He's a servant of that gospel. He's an apostle with the same authority as the other apostles. Even uh, the other apostles have accepted him as one of their own, one who has uh, known Christ personally and therefore has that level of apostolic, apostolic authority uh, in the early church. And in the second portion of chapter 2, beginning at verse 11 from our reading, we see Paul providing an account of, uh, uh, that he, of a time that he used this authority to challenge and even overcome uh, another apostle and what they were teaching because they were in error. Uh, this is a matter of that old law versus the gospel, the Jewish ritual versus unity with the Gentiles. And since Paul's primary concern with the Galatians and with other churches for that matter is that they may have been led into misunderstanding uh, caused by overvaluing the old law in the new world, in the new uh, Christian freedom that's come along with Christ's sacrifice. Uh, he wants to address this directly. He's afraid of churches that will disregard Paul's wisdom on the matter and uh, this passage becomes one of the pivotal um, teachings in Paul's kind of catalogs of, of teaching in general. This is likely written quite early in the growth of the, uh, of the early church. It may well be this letter, and if not this one, then teachings like it springing around it, uh, that were most responsible for Christianity ultimately becoming its own religion, its own movement, rather than just a subsection of the Jewish faith that sort of got snowballed into that, uh, and maybe even lost to time, like many other uh, movements with, with saviors, where obviously God was moving this with his hand, and this is how he did it. And this means that the words of Jesus spread far and wide to the Gentiles, uh, so much so that people think of it today as a Gentile faith. They think of Christianity as a Western belief, almost a European belief sometime, which is crazy because it comes out of the center of where Europe and Asia and Africa meet. It's like the world religion. Uh, and I've heard uh, even uh, people today, modern Jews, who are surprised to learn that Jesus is a Jew himself. And they most often think that because he was from, because this is connected to the Roman Catholic Church, then Jesus must have been Italian, is a reasonably common guess. And I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again many times because it applies to many passages. This is, um, but to us, the fact that we don't have this old Jewish ritual system uh, that we have to obey. That's so obvious to us because we've been living in the reality of that for 2,000 years. At the time, that wasn't necessarily obvious. Paul was saying something that was radical and hard for people to understand. Uh, it wasn't straightforward to them that you would give away what the Jews had been doing for so long and then take on another uh, different practice, one that was quite opposite. Uh, opposite in the sense that there was so much of the Jewish ritual that was about being separate from the nations. And the new faith was saying, be one with the nations, connect with them, be united with them in Christ. So that wasn't necessarily obvious, and there were those who failed to understand it. We ought to understand that they failed to understand it, uh, even as we celebrate the freedom that Paul confirms for us in this passage. This passage of Paul opposing Peter or, uh, or Cephas or Cephas, uh, as the text calls him, plays out in three parts. Uh, 11 to 13, Paul is claiming this hypocrisy from Peter, 
Uh, 14 to 16, Paul holds Peter accountable to the truth. He starts this public accusation. He says what he's doing wrong. And 17 to 21, Paul uh, defends his position. And he imagines the horrible alternative, what it would mean if the law was still relevant in the way it's being portrayed by Peter and these Judaizers. And we'll look at each of them right here. In verses 11 to 13, Paul is highlighting the issue. Uh, Peter is separating himself from the Gentiles, the way he lives, the way he practices and preaches. Just as Pharisaical Judaism had held before Jesus came, had held for the Jews to do with their lives, to dine apart from the Gentiles, to worship God apart from the Gentiles, to stay apart from the Gentiles, uh, because the Jews were God's select people, and they had a divine purpose that they needed to safeguard. And this was true. In a large part, it was kind of a true thing. God had demanded for his people to remain separate from the nations around them and had historically uh, been quite severe in his punishment for being too flippant about that divide. Um, more than once in the Old Testament, a, a king marries foreign wives um, or merchants begin Sabbath trading with the Gentiles or generals strike a premature deal with their enemies. And the long-term consequence is this, of this is that the the people of God, they diminish in faith and their devotion to God because their culture are built around the Mosaic faith, around the law, becomes diluted. Uh, it, it becomes interspersed with idols and traditions and practices from outside of the Jewish realm. Um, and this is like the entire story of the Old Testament is basically a sequence of those events happening. Uh, God saying, be my people without any reservation and the people keep blowing it until finally Jerusalem is flattened and abandoned and then recolonized and rebuilt. And then they finally seem to kind of get it and internalize it. It takes the Israelites a thousand years and a dozen or well, dozens of fallen kings and exile and dem the demolition of the temple uh, to finally get into their heads, good and proper, how apart from the world they are and how they are meant to be and that their God is not like the God uh, the various gods of the nations and what other people worship. They have a very different duty apart from uh, just having their own little provincial god like everyone else. They were meant to be a kind of an international priesthood, a lighthouse to which the world can look and seek the wisdom of the true god of the world. And that took a thousand years to digest and to become really a solid part of the culture that wasn't being constantly invalidated by these idols and a decay over generations. And then over the next 400 years after that thousand years, Israel becomes kind of insular and bitter and despises the Gentiles. Uh, a lot happened in that time and the world had not been kind to the Jews and the people of Israel had plenty to be annoyed at the Gentiles about. They rebuilt the temple and that had been desecrated by the Samaritans who threw bones into the Holy of Holies. Um, the crazy Greek governor Antiochus Epimenes, he slaughtered a pig and dragged its blood around at the Holy of Holies in the temple. Um, and just in case we forget, uh, the Roman Empire occupied Israel. They demolished the kingship of Jerusalem and, oh yeah, they nailed the Jewish Messiah to a cross uh, if you need a reason to be annoyed at the Gentiles. So in case we have the instinct to frown at first century Jews and say, well, that's stupid. You should just love everyone equally then this is a powerful reality to live in. And uh, a history of God demanding your apartness from the world and a really significant streak of blasphemy as a result of closeness with the world. Uh, but to the point, 
the point they really missed here is, is tragic. It's not a stupid thing like these dummies they should have known. It's, it's tragic that they missed the point that Israel was being set apart so it could be beacon to the world, to lead the world in a sense. The world was meant to see these people who live by these obviously priestly different ways, uh, restrictions to their diet, how they live, how they act. They know they are priests of a God who is different to their God. They know they can come to them. That was the idea of the people of God, to the point where the Jews would be the people of God um, so much so that the world can uh, gather around them. We see glimpses of that in, uh, in the high point of the kingdom of Israel. That was kind of Solomon's kingdom. The kings of other nations came to him for wisdom, to come to know God better. And it kind of got to the point eventually, however, that the separation from the world, that idea inside the, the Jewish mindscape there was that the rest of the world can go to hell because God can't, just doesn't care about them. And if they really want to know God anywhere, they'd become Jewish. They'd go that far. They'd do everything they need to do to become Jewish. But we know that Jesus did not, <laughs> he did not commission the disciples and say, go forth and circumcise the world. Uh, it would be a very different evangelism practice entirely. Uh, teaching them to avoid bacon and prawns and to avoid polycotton blends, that didn't happen. And Peter understood all of this. Peter understood what Jesus had actually given people. He understood the gospel. But he'd had some kind of bad interaction or bad advice from these men that came from James. Um, there's some indication that maybe all of the, the time that Peter was spending hanging out with the, the Gentiles in Antioch was kind of creating a ripple back to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, the, the Jews were having trouble um, maintaining their sense of, of, of uh, Jewishness, I guess. Um, they were more sensitive to external influences in Jerusalem. James sends these guys to, to Peter and they say, hey, Peter, you've got to knock this off. Uh, you need to be more Jewish about how, how Christian you are being. He becomes afraid of this group uh, who they call the Judaizers here, who are clinging to, to Jewish tradition and making that part of the, uh, the Jewish tradition an entry fee into Christianity. Now, what is he afraid of in them exactly? We don't quite know. Maybe he's afraid he'll lose their respect. Uh, maybe their respect is so important to him that he would compromise the way he's practicing his faith to try and keep it. Maybe he's afraid that they will arrange for him to be killed. I mean, this is you know, not a world in which that kind of thing didn't happen. It's the Wild West back then. Uh, or the Wild Near East, I suppose. Maybe he's, um, maybe he's very conscious of the fact that Jesus told him, Peter, mind my sheep, and he took into his head that uh, the first flock of sheep that of God's people were the people of Israel and was loath to alienate them. But as a result of compromising in this appeal to the group, which is here called the circumcision people, the, the Judaizers, Peter begins to adopt this isolating practice. He divides himself uh, and the Jewish Christians from the Gentiles, and particularly the Gentile non-Christians, who are trying to know more about God. And he, they, they impose upon them this need to become uh, fully Jewish, which is circumcision, dietary laws, all that stuff in order to participate in the Christian uh, belief, in the Christian church there. He'd taken what was supposed to be a barrier between the priesthood nation and the other nations and made it a barrier between the nations and God, which was never what that was intended for. And he does so in such a way that even Barnabas, Paul's sometime partner in crime, had taken uh, this argument to himself and started to believe it. Um, and so Peter has, has taken this on board. 
Barnabas has taken this on board, but Paul's pretty clear in saying this is Peter's responsibility. He was the apostle in the situation. He should have seen this and seen through it. And so Paul finds himself standing alone to defend what he knows is true, that Jesus did not come to make a pathway for the Gentiles to become Jews. He did not come to make a pathway for the Gentiles to become Jews. He came to create a pathway for the Gentiles and Jews to become sons and daughters of God. That's what he came to do. And so then Paul calls Peter out. Because what Peter is doing is a danger to the faith broadly. Uh, it imperils the consciences and the moral standing of many people there. And so Paul does this uh, quite publicly. He doesn't go and discreetly discourage Peter and say, look, I would like to quietly counsel you to change what you're saying. He quite bombastically uh, denounces Peter's hypocrisy publicly. He says, Peter, you're a Jew, but you live like a Gentile in private. I know that and you know that. Now, we're not told precisely what he means when he says that Peter is living like a Gentile. Uh, perhaps he's still in private context happy to be free of the Jewish law restrictions. Uh, but he puts on airs for his Judaizer friends. Maybe Paul is merely calling Peter to account for the fact that he knows morally and intellectually that the law is not what saves him, that he's living in faith. And it's the grace of God that saves him. Maybe that's what he means by living as a Gentile. Either way, Paul sees this, uh, this backwards compromise as a moral failing on Peter's part, but not one he's completely invested in. It's one that is making him guilty of hypocrisy. And he says to Peter, you and I are Jews by birth, so we know better than anyone that the law cannot save. Only the Savior does. The law on its own, on its own power, cannot accomplish that. And that's Paul's case, and he buttresses that in verse 16 by invoking uh, the scriptures from Psalm 143, verse 2. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Now, in the Greek, the word indeed is no flesh, not no one. And that's a little tidbit that may be interesting for your studies another time. Now, in fairness to Peter's position, or at least the one he's half upholding, um, if somewhat hypocritically, Paul engages in a defense of his own position first uh, by tackling the natural objection he anticipates and then spells out the consequences of the error that Peter is perpetuating here. And that's in verses 17 to 21. And this is where the passage starts to get the most crunchy. Uh, so we'll do that one verse at a time. Verse 17. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. Now this is a familiar kind of construction for those who are fans of Paul's argument. Uh, you see the same kind of structure in his, in his, structure in his diatribe, notably in Romans. Uh, Romans 6, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. That kind of thing. Are you saying that we should still sin? No, obviously not. Uh, what Paul is engaging here is the bafflement that folks have when they encounter the idea of the gospel for the first time. Yeah. What Paul is engaging is the bafflement that folks have when they encounter the gospel uh, and the idea of the gospel for the first time. Because people have known in various cultures and various religions as kind of a general understanding of, of the, the universe for thousands of years that they've been a, in a deficit relationship with the transcendent. They owe something to heaven. And they accrue and continue to accrue that deficit by acting in a way of which heaven disapproves. And then there needs to be some kind of reckoning between what is owed to God and how we live 
down here on earth. We are sinners. God can't accept sinners. Something must be done to resolve that tension. Right? That's always been the problem. That's what religion is, is it trying to solve that uh, as an answer. But the gospel says two things, and you have to absorb them at the same time for it to really be the gospel. And they kind of feel like they're hard to chew at once. So the first one is A, all your efforts to make yourself acceptable to God are fruitless. And God has done the hard work and he has paid the price of your sins for you. There is no sin that can separate you from the Father. There is no sin that can separate those who call the Son Lord and Savior from the Father who loves them. No one can separate him. There is no sin that can separate those who call the Son Lord and Savior, and no one can separate them from the Father who loves them. That's A. And then there's B. Notwithstanding the fact that our sins are forgiven, stop sinning. Go forth and sin no more. Live a life that is battling against that sin, that is trying to degrade and distract you. Uh, don't be drawn into worldly, fleshy, devilly spirals of sin that are laid out as traps for you. And you can see why these are kind of hard to serve on the same plate. Jesus has saved us from our sins. Oh, so we can keep on sinning then? No. Well, so we're not saved. Well, yes, you are saved. Do sins stop me from being saved? No. Well, then why wouldn't I keep sinning? Well, because God hates sin. Yes, but I like sinning, and God likes me, and he likes me enough to save me from sin. So kind of shakes out. What's the problem here? Here's the problem, Paul says in verses 18 and 19. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I have died to the law so that I might live for God. Through the law, I have died to the law. Paul is saying that that whole structure, the whole idea that there is a prescription of things that God requires us to do and perform to establish righteousness, and that if I can just accomplish them well enough, I will become righteous. That law reveals him to be unrighteous. It shows him to be insufficient. And in striving to be good, he realizes how helplessly sinful he was. And if you haven't had this experience yourself, uh, then brother or sister, look forward to that because that is the one right before you hit the pavement where you really get to know God and that last step is a doozy. Maybe not with the law in the Jewish sense, but with our own sense of evaluating ourselves, Am I a good person? Or even better than that, am I who I'm supposed to be? Which is really the question we hold ourselves up against. God is engraved on the hearts of everyone, even those who don't know him and don't know the, uh, the Christian terms to explain this stuff. He's engraved on the hearts of them enough moral law so that they too can have the veiled blessing of looking in the mirror and knowing in their bones that the person looking back at them is not one-fifth of what God wants them to be and who they are supposed to be. And if they could just be that kind of person in their own lives, the kind of person they expect others to be all the time to them, then the quality of their lives and the lives of those around them would improve immeasurably. And Paul knew this about himself, even though he was the most vigorous defender and pursuer of what was considered righteous in his world. And so when presented with the option of following Christ, he didn't just tack Jesus onto the side of the stuff he already believed. He let that old life, what he expected of himself and the sinful parts of him uh, that meant he could never live up to those expectations, he let that all die. He let it all die. 
It's all buried together, and the life that he lives is now a totally new thing. From verses 20 to 21. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, or in the flesh in the, in the Greek, uh, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. He says, the life he now lives is not reckoned with by performing the Jewish law. It's not reckoned with by performing the Jewish law and trying to hold up to that standard. It's reckoned by living in faith in the Son of God. Faith, devotion, loyalty to personal investment in the Son of God. We battle against sin in our lives, not because we fear damnation uh, if we don't, but because we are following a sinless master and trying to be like him and to please him. Do you feel the difference in those two different ways of looking at it? We're not avoiding something. We are seeking something. We are not dodging hell. We are chasing heaven. And this flesh, this body that Paul talks about, this uh, remnant of the human mortal life we live, it's just a vehicle in which we are chasing heaven while we're still here, following the bright path that Jesus made clear for us when he died and gave himself up for us. That's what we call grace. And if you put that to the side and try and install a structure of action and performance on which will be graded to determine our worth and hope that we measure up to heavenly standards, then we're just spending our days fruitlessly dodging the hell that we have already been rescued from as if Jesus' death had accomplished nothing. That's what Paul is saying. The irony of it all is that the law was not given to save in the first place. And making the law, the Jewish law, a prerequisite to be saved empties, of its, empties that law of its actual sacred purpose. If you go back and read the books of Moses with what you know now as a Christian, then you can see this clear as day. Uh, for the Jews, there were many laws on how to personally conduct yourself, how to keep yourself ritually clean. That's like the outside kind of ring of this system. That's how the people interact with the world beyond them. Then inside, there's a series of sacrifices and offerings, like an inside ring in this system. And that's about gratitude. It's about devotion. And right at the center of this whole system, in the bullseye of it, there is what they call the Day of Atonement, this like very critical festival and offering they do in which the people's sins are together symbolically imparted uh, onto a sacrifice. And they always, they've always known throughout this period, or most of the time they've known, they've been aware of the fact that bulls and goats and sheep are not magic animals and their blood does not magically take away sin. This was all symbolism. It's all pointing towards something. It's sacred, but it's symbolic. And they're pointing forward to a time when God would himself provide a supernatural sacrifice that was genuinely capable of absorbing the sin of the world. That's the fulfillment of the law. That's what Jesus accomplished. That's exactly what God gave us. And these Judaizers, the circumcision group, they're diminishing the glory of the gospel by insisting on the lasting importance of the law as if it could accomplish something it was never designed to accomplish. It's like reading a bus timetable out loud and hoping to be transported into the city. It's like performing CPR on someone six months after they've recovered from a heart attack. It's like winning a first-class ticket 
all expenses paid vacation to Hawaii, checking your bags, boarding, settling into your chair, clicking on the belt, ordering your meals, and then as the plane begins taxiing to take off on the runway, reaching out and flapping your arms to try and achieve lift. Paul reminds us that we are to follow Jesus out of devotion and not out of fear. We read all the scriptures because they can tell us in the law the kind of life that God wants us to live. All the moral laws point like this. Do not steal, do not murder, do not covet. Uh, these are the kinds of actions that someone uh, chasing the heaven in Christ's footsteps must turn away from if they're really following him. But the ritual laws, the dining with Gentiles, the um, certain foods, the certain fabrics, there's no one in the world who thinks that God is morally angry at pigs or blended fabrics. Those laws served a purpose of making the Jewish people distinct. Now what makes the people of God distinct from the world is our love. John 13, 35 says, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The Jews did not need to be distinct from the Gentiles anymore because they weren't, because of the law, the people of God anymore. The people of God are those who follow God's Messiah, and those people were distinct on the basis of the fact that they were the people of love, a conspicuous love in the world. They were the ones who were transformed by the love of God and agents of love in the world, distinct from the world around them. And anything that we set up as an obstacle or a boundary that prevents people from coming to know Jesus is a terrible offense against God. That's the institutional lesson to take away from this passage, is that traditions are wonderful, they hold communities together, but we mustn't ever let them become something that obstructs the gospel. The personal lesson, however, is available to all of us to take and apply to our own lives right away. In your own life, especially inside your own head, do you live like you're dodging hell or chasing heaven? Have you allowed your self-criticism or the criticism of others or a string of failures to conquer a vexing sin, have you allowed that to make you forget that you are in fact saved by the grace of God, by the sacrifice of our Savior Jesus Christ? And that we're living not out of desperation to avoid punishment, but out of love for the one who saved us from punishment. Reject the temptation to sin, not because it has any power over you, doesn't have the power to damn you or take you out of God's hands, but because you want to follow the example of Jesus. And when you fail and you stumble and you fall short of how you would hope to perform, remember that you are forgiven. Make a change in how you're living so you don't have to uh, fall in the same way again and resolve to do better in the future. The old is gone, crucified with Christ. Now you are living for Christ because he loved you and gave himself up for you. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your plan that saved us from sin. We thank you that you designed from the beginning of creation to leave a light in the world to draw people to you. That light was first in your people Israel. It shone brightest in your son Jesus. And now that we're united to him, what a privilege it is to be a reflector of that light ourselves. Father, if anyone in our fellowship is struggling in this way, help them know in their hearts the freedom 
and grace and love that they know in their heads and profess with their lips. Help each of us to live a life in faith placed in your son Jesus and let nothing we do in this world create a barrier between a single sinner's soul and your loving arms. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.